0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan Interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning.
1: My name is Alexis Boylan, and I am the director of academic affairs um, at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, and I'm a professor of art history and Africana studies.
2: I'm Wendy Hi chun I'm Canada 150 research chair in New Media at Simon Fraser University where I also direct the Digital Democracies Institute.
1: Thank you so much for talking um, with all of us and about the seeing truth project. I'm going to start Wendy with a super small like super easy like just like rolling you into the conversation question. Um, so do you believe in truth uh, why or why not <laughs>
2: <laughs> I see you really are starting
1: with easy. Yeah, I just, I want it to be an easy conversation. So I figured that, you know, the, on, the only, the greatest question of our sort of humanity is a good place to just get to know each other. So
2: yeah, truth. I absolutely do believe in truth. Um, part of it is because I, I'm, as a literary scholar, I always think through etymology and truth is, is linked to trust um and so i think that the question of things we trust and how we come to trust things are absolutely key and i believe there exist things that we are that we trust the line of thought that i follow is within history of science and the ways in which um scientific truth emerged through the um adoption of certain types of methodology that were supposed to be reproducible. They weren't always reproduced, experiments weren't always reproduced, but they were framed in such a way um, to be conceivably reproducible um, and therefore set up a certain circle of of trust that would coincide with truth. So here I'm thinking of Stephen Shapin's work. Um, I'm also thinking about uh, work on facts and the difference uh, between facts and truth by Mary Pruvey, and I'm also thinking of some of the work around the difference between data, which are things that are given, um, and truth and fact, um, which Dan Rosenberg has been working with.
1: Science and art have long made claims about both their disciplinary, um, and this is just what you were referring to, and their ethical potential to deliver truth. Do you think either can make claims to truth or are they both always skimming? And I think your first answer sort of suggested this skimming around the idea of truth without perhaps ever getting to the core of it.
2: I think i my most persuasive um, a statement. I think it was attributed to Foucault that his books will have been true after um, the engagement with it. I think truth is a process, again, thinking through the scientific method, et cetera. So I do think that um, it's something that one reaches towards, um, perhaps asymptotically. Um, It's not something that simply we land on. Um, I think facticity is something that we can land on. What is correct is something we can land on. But truth um, is far more, because it's processual. is also far more conceptual. So one thing I would think about, say, in terms of scientific um, uh, analysis, something like greenhouse gases and our understanding of greenhouse gases is true. Um, That isn't true, but um, global climate change models um, are going to be correct or incorrect. In fact, their predictions will probably not be entirely correct um, due to the intricacies of the atmosphere, et cetera. But does that mean they're not true? I would argue no. Um, So I think there's a gap between what's true and what's correct. um, And what we come to accept as true or what we come to trust is a very dynamic process. So how does art factor
1: into that? Um, And I'm actually thinking of extending your sort of metaphor, um, not metaphor, but your example of uh, greenhouse gases. And I was thinking about, A real sort of question that a lot of visual culture specialists have pondered and worried about is how is it that this truth of climate change um, uh, seems to be um, very difficult to activate in people as an artistic, like that there's lots of climb art. There's lots of art that deals with this idea of climate change, yet none of it seems to necessarily have coalesced people or made people see the truth is that because we're not there yet or the art isn't there yet or because art fundamentally doesn't have the same power to sort of uh, uh, to, to speak to truth um uh in, in either a snap way or in this the, a Foucauldian way of a sort of more um uh expansive view of it.
2: I think that the question for me is less art in terms of global climate change and more experience. So what I find really convincing is um, Jim Hansen's argument that uh, global climate change is really difficult to understand because means are abstract. When, when you talk about the increase in a mean temperature, I mean, a mean is itself a, a, a computational construct. It came with a you know with ma- massive processing. Um, And so what he's argued is instead what's important is that with global climate change, we now have events which are increasing number of events which are three standard deviations away from the norm, so we have global weirding. Um, And this isn't the norm, right? But it's a side effect of, of the increasing norm and the energy that's put in the system. But people can experience these weird weather events. And these weird weather events are actually what are convincing people more and more that global climate change is real. Um, and so I think there's a level of, of personal experience where I think art and I would say literature is so persuasive, is that people read things, people watch things, people look at things that have no claim to be factual or not factual, um, yet feel absolutely true. Um, one can think of the film that one watches, the novel that one reads, Um visual art or an exhibition that that registers a a certain truth that is outside of the realm of facticity. And this is where I think art is so key.
1: So I'm going to pivot a little bit to the question of museums, um, just because our project has to do so much with museums. But I think also I like to think of museums as a platform and your work of course deals a lot with sort of how how we are delivered our information and our truths and our facts. So museums promise to deliver and present and advocate um, knowledge, uh, data, um, uh, made into a visual uh, uh, or, or represented by visual objects. But is that knowledge always political and nationalist and tainted? In other words, how much sort of um, faith or how much, um, how much stock should we put in museums and their ability to speak to truth um, in, this, in this historical moment?
2: I think the role of museums is key, but for me um, the work I find most convincing is Ariella Azulai's work and her argument regarding potential history, which is that in order to um, engage with truth and museums what we need to do is move away from the idea that the archive is a source of information um, and that these sources um, that the museum draws from are the past, we've moved away from the past, and this is progress towards understanding what the museum holds as um, potential history, as companions um, that aren't relegated to the past, that continue to exist. Um, and that these archives give us ways to reenact and understand our relationships to them. And I think one example that were, that is powerful for me, which isn't necessarily in the realm of museums, but I think gets to some of these questions, um, is around the question of uh, indige- indigenous residential schools and the ways in which um, students that of course were malnourished, they were maltreated. It was a, it's a huge blight on Canadian history. Um, But everybody knew they were malnourished, but rather than actually feeding the kids more, what they did was they decided to study them. Um, And so they took their blood and wanted to understand the effects of malnutrition on um, child development and tuberculosis. And that work became key to what's called now the Canada Food Guide. Um, so, to our understanding of what is healthy for children, and it's become standard and something that to which we all, always move towards. Now, the fact that there, we're now uncovering graves of um, children who were um, who died in the residential schools because of tuberculosis and malnutrition um, is being posited as this great uncovering, right? Using this technology, but as many survivors have pointed out, we they've been saying that these graves have been there for the longest time, that the act of uncovery is actually an act of, of covering over in order to uncover what's been there. And I think that what's so key about thinking through museums and the evidence that it holds or the exhibits that it holds and the way it frames things is precisely that question of companionship and standards. To what extent can we use Um, And and again, a lot of the artifacts that are included, of course, were not considered to be art. There's a whole process in which people's artifacts then become art um, and thinking through, again, the relationality of them and not simply to the quote unquote original populations, but the ways in which they become embedded within our habits and standards, I think is crucial to opening up uh, this kind of dialogue and understanding what what the museum can open up.
1: This is a little sort of off topic, but I just wanted to ask you, you make this sort of really convincing case about people, the general public. Like we could have a dialogue that would be different about truth and around Azule and this sort of idea of potential history. Like if we thought about archives as not stable, but as activist and that we have to sort of deal with them almost as if they are, um, a tenacious, um, capacious, alive entity to which different things will become apparent in different moments. There'll be a push and pull. But what I see in our political climate right now is actually a much more um, uh, a refusal of ambiguity, a hatred of liminality. And how do we how do we change that how do we as people who want to see museums and archives and our computers and the internet as places in which truth can be reinvigorated and reimagined how do we do that how do we make it happen
2: I think one thing I do in the book is just go to the concepts that are fundamental to network science and social media and say, if we go to them, we go to the historical examples, right? The biracial housing project, we understand that there was so much more there than homophily, than um, similarity breeds connection. So I think that part of the reason to go back to these and to think through the populations that we touch um, is for me key to understanding and questioning what it is that remains. So again, for me, what a network is, isn't simply the the, the clean lines, the node and the lines, but the gaps, the things that have been erased without which there would be no connection to begin with. And if we think through these gaps, then what opens up is is an entire richness of of human experience. Um, I think that one thing that I find troubling or interesting about this current time isn't that people are afraid of liminality, but everyone is claiming liminality. Mm-hmm. um and so the ways in which you know if you think through um the ways in which stigma has now become you know a certain politics of recognition so think about the incels and the ways in which you know what could have been once a stigma the fact that you you, know, you are incelibate has now become a point of pride and also a point of community mm-hmm. um so and it's through embracing of certain forms of liminality and insisting on this form of liminality as exceptional um, but at the same time, linking it to other groups and then um, and all, and they're all together around hatred of X. Mm-hmm. Um, to me is the important point. So there seems to be this bizarre actually inhabitation of these borderlands. Um, and it's not what it was supposed to be. And so I think that thinking through the limitations of methodology, the limitations of thinking through. Uh, the ideas of liminality as the the way forward towards certain forms of of um, reconceptualizing the world for the better i think is, is something we're being faced with i would say that i don't know if it's optimism but it's more like what else can we do i mean there's a moment where you say well you can just sit there and say this is all going to hell in a handbasket or you can say well what is it that we can do? And for me, um, I spent 20 years at Brown. I, I loved you know, modern culture media, it was, it was great. Um, but for me, it became important to say, look, there, there is knowledge that we're producing and there are limitations to what we're doing. And we were profoundly aware of both of them. Mm-hmm. And so maybe we should start working with others in order to take on these issues that we say we care about. I wanted to pull back
1: a little bit to the instigator items um, and was wondering if you had an item. Um, So the instigator items are from the American Museum of Natural History um, and uh, it's from their archive collection. The museum is divided up, of course, into departments, but the archives is a collection of what they pull from all of these um, uh, departments um, and what gets saved and what gets lost and, and all that sort of thing. And the instigator items are brought together um, in this sort of attempt to reframe what even an exhibition would be. And so I was wondering if any of the instigator items um, provoked you or instigated you to think about uh, truth and science and art in new ways. Definitely
2: the um, the the sketch of the gorilla musculature. And for me, that was um, that moment of of realizing not only the sort of violence that comes with certain forms of scientific investigation, but also the ways in which this violence is addressed to so many um, animals that are akin. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, of course, that this was not just directed towards primates, but also other other humans, right? the sort of anatomy and the drawing of cadavers but also the the objectification in terms of this these really beautiful drawings of musculature um, uh, were premised on certain forms of um, colonial and and racial hierarchies. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as well though there is this sort of a moment of like well but it's not so different so even as it it's, it makes these claims, like you really have to look to say, oh no, it, it is a primate, it's not a human. Right. Um, so I think it undermines that our exceptionalism as well in really interesting ways and brings up all sorts of questions of kinship and relationality, um, as well as some of the issues of why we're so fascinated by these. I, I think of the body part um, exhibition, of course, that mm-hmm. the, you know, which I find completely creepy. But there is this sort of fascination with the, the details of understanding what is under the, the skin. Mm-hmm. And to what extent is revealing what is under the skin a way to relate ourselves to others. And what does it say that we have to dissect in order to get there as well?
1: Well, I love the layers too. I mean, that always fascinates me is that, I mean, because that is a total visual construction. I mean, that is, that is the work of sort of deciding, I mean, that the layers don't sit that neatly like and the way that they're presented but yeah no that piece is fascinating it's also it's also it's it's very it's almost life-size it's not it's not life-size but it is in 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 real life it is quite large and um the detail is stunning and again it brings out exactly that tension Um, uh, and it's always interesting to me to have people look at it i find that there's two immediate reactions and one is like oh that is gross like You're not going to show that. And the other one is people fall into it um, and just can't stop looking at it. I do think that it is also for exactly what you said it brings together all the various parts of the museum's enterprise um which is a scientific knowledge and visualizing that but also this much longer history of where that knowledge pushes us to think about ourselves as humans and how we have used this information to discriminate um to justify genocide all all of the other sort of things that have got how closely those are twinned, um, uh, cause they're the same in, in that object. So, all right, final question. Um, uh, and thank you so much. It's been really fun talking with you. So final question, again, a super easy one. Tell me Wendy Chan, the one thing that, you know, in the world that is true.
2: There are many, but if I had to choose one. one, I would say that the love that my partner and I have for each other are what is is what I know is true. And again, it's it's true not because it simply exists, but because it's a process to which we've been committed through many ups and downs for over half my life. So
1: a okay. Love that answer. Um, and I will say that is a fabulous way to say goodbye. Um, everybody should go out and read discriminating data and all of Professor Chun's work. It is phenomenal and inspirational, and it gives us a path forward, which we um, uh, really could use at
0: this moment. So
1: thank you, Wendy. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to a special Seeing Truth episode of the Why We Argue podcast. Future of Truth edition. Many thanks to Toby Napolitano at the University of California Merced who handles our sound and thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.